Today from the Global Lane, deadly coronavirus outbreak. It's a pandemic ahead. How one group is spreading hope in the midst of the crisis. The UK finally leaves the European Union. You know what, it smells like freedom. Which country may be the next to leave? Trump boasts about a robust US economy, but this one thing may kill American prosperity. And House Speaker temper tantrum? The State of the Union's most memorable and emotional moments. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Another person outside of China has died from the deadly coronavirus disease, this time a 39-year-old man in Hong Kong who had traveled to Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the virus outbreak. He's the second person to die from the virus outside the Chinese mainland. Before his death, a 44-year-old man in the Philippines died from the coronavirus. He also had traveled to Wuhan before returning to the Philippines. Well, joining us with more on the coronavirus outbreak from the Philippines is CBN News Asia correspondent Lucille Toulousen. So, Lucille, what can you tell us about the man who died from coronavirus in the Philippines? Who was he? What happened? There's no name to that man, but he and uh, his partner are from Wuhan province, and they came here to the Philippines um, as tourists, um, especially during that week. That was the week of the Chinese New Year. And then suddenly on Sunday, you know, the man just, the, the, um, his health deteriorated and died. I understand that uh, flights from China are being uh, banned now in the Philippines, but uh, your government hasn't really reacted quickly to this. What's going on? Yes, and that is why the government, Philippine President Duterte, are uh, getting a lot of criticisms because he ordered the travel ban to the, the people coming from China, Hong Kong, and Macau only on Sunday. And this is the day when the man died. And the reason for this uh, is it's because of the, the influx of tourists during the Chinese New Year is really... Um, it's a really, it's a big thing because, you know, it adds to the economy of the Philippines and it's a, a big uh, loss if, if, if they will ban the people, the Chinese from coming. It's, it's about 200 to 300,000 Chinese. So maybe money over health in this instance. Now the death toll is rising quickly. China just opened a hastily constructed hospital. I guess it was built in only 10 days, and now they're placing people in quarantine, taking other measures. But some health officials outside of China believe they're not being truthful about the actual cases and number of deaths. It may be many more. What have you learned? People say that the, the Chinese from the Wuhan, Wuhan province were already leaving the province even before there was a lockdown. So this can also uh, tell us that there was already a lot of people getting contaminated and people getting sick of the virus, getting infected of the corona coronavirus. I also heard that, you know, in, in a province, in, in a town, a member of the family can only go out. One member per family can just go out and buy some food and whatever they need. And that's because the coronavirus is spreading really quickly, very quickly. And it's, you know, it's now a pandemic. I know some Christians are using this coronavirus outbreak as an opportunity to demonstrate and share the love of Christ. Tell us about what's happening in Wuhan. Yes, in Wuhan, uh, since the uh, services 
have been canceled. So now they turn into the, the internet, uh, digital media. The pastors encourage the, their flock through the digital media. And also there are Christians, there's a ministry in Wuhan. They go out to the streets, very courageous, and they give out masks and they say that they are Christians and they, they point, they uh, share the love of Christ and point to Jesus to uh, bring hope to them and uh, their families and the whole China. And this is really a breakthrough. There are 100 million Christians mostly underground in uh, in China. And this is really a breakthrough that now they can go out into the open because they're also uh, persecuted in China. Yes, a lot of cameras are watching their movements and what they're doing. Okay, from the Philippines, Lucille Toulousan, CBN News Asia correspondent. Thanks for sharing that additional information. After years of bitter fighting between political parties, Britain has finally left the European Union. But what lies ahead? And will another nation leave? Dale Hurd reports from London. Britain's 47-year relationship with the European Union officially ended at 11 p.m. Friday night to shouts of jubilation by Brexit supporters. The party is over and Britain is out of the European Union. And now Brussels will be watching nervously to see if another European nation will follow Britain out the door. Italy, Poland, Denmark and Finland are all said to be unhappy with the European Union. But are they unhappy enough to leave? And Britain still has an 11-month transition period until 2021 before its last ties to the EU are cut. Brexit party leader Nigel Farage says he likes the way Boris Johnson is handling it so far. I mean, he's saying we won't have any jurisdiction from the European Court of Justice. Good. We're aiming for a Canada-style trade deal, which means the rest of our economy won't be bound by EU rules. Good. Uh, no regulatory alignment. Good. In fact, it's everything I've ever wanted. But there is a sense here that Britain has just stepped into the unknown, and those who opposed Brexit fear rough times ahead. Depressed. Um, down, downbeaten. But Brexit supporters believe that for their great nation, the future just got brighter. Things are going to be tough in the beginning, but I think we're going to make it. It, it, it may take a year, may take a couple of years, but you know what? It smells like freedom. CBN News senior international correspondent Dale Hurd joins us now from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Dale, I like that. It smells like freedom. So how are the people in Northern Ireland responding? Are they as excited as that man in London? Uh, no, uh, they call it the Betrayal Act. So a, a big difference in reaction here among the unionists. They don't like it at all. And in the Stormont, they didn't approve it, in fact. They didn't approve the Brexit deal. They just sort of abstained. Um, they feel they're being sacrificed so that this deal will go through. They're gonna be sort of a buffer zone as it stands now between Britain and the EU, and they'll still have some EU or all of the EU trade restrictions, as well as an open border with Ireland. They don't like that. Dale, explain to people, why did it take so long for the Brexit? After all, I, I know that Brits voted three and a half years ago to leave the European Union. Well, if folks are familiar with the, the kids game Monkey in the Middle, uh, 
Theresa May and Boris John were the Boris Johnson were the monkeys in the middle, and the European leaders and the British Parliament, uh, the elitists on both pieces of land who didn't like Brexit, kept playing keep away from the British Prime Minister. Theresa May was essentially not only sabotaged by Parliament but by her own party, and and uh, Boris Johnson put the fear into his own party, and uh, as well as you know called those elections. And that's what finally pushed it through. But the establishment, I think, in Britain as well as in Europe, uh, they didn't like this, and they tried to make it as painful as possible. Well, are they going to continue to make it painful? What are some of the troubles ahead in this 11-month transition period and then afterwards? Well, the biggest fear, I was talking to a Brexit leader, and they don't trust Boris Johnson. Nigel Farage, uh, you may have shown in my piece, was is out front saying, good so far what Boris Johnson is saying, but uh, this Brexit, le Brexit leader was telling me they don't believe Boris Johnson is a true conservative. He's a pragmatist, and they're afraid that he's he may say good things about British independence, but that, you know, he may change his tune here midstream when he's negotiating with the Europeans. So uh, they're nervous that this may not turn out as well as they had hoped. They're just going to have to wait and see. And I know one of the big reasons that England left the EU is the EU stance on open borders and immigration. Uh, you mentioned other countries may follow the Great Britain lead. So which country might be next and why? You know, Italy, I think of Italy as the country that is the angriest at the European Union and where both the left and right don't like the European Union and the country's economy has suffered because it's been stuck on the euro. And, uh, you know, would be a bumpy ride if it got off the euro initially, but th then being on a weaker currency, Italy would be allowed to recover. One of the most interesting nations that does not like the European Union is Finland. And I was there last fall, and I'm asking why does the happiest country in Europe, as it's called, not like the European Union? And I think it, they don't like being bossed around. That's another issue in a lot of these countries. You know, the EU started out as an economic program, a free trade zone, and now it's become, you know, this top-down system where countries have to accept EU laws, and a number of them don't like it. And what will this now mean, Dale, for relations between England and the United States? Hmm. Well, you know, actually, what what is going, what is happening right now? Because Britain foolishly. Uh, wants to put in uh, their 5G network with Huawei, the Chinese company that's in bed with the Chinese military and has all kinds of backdoor uh, potential for Chinese eavesdropping. The U.S. has warned the British that if they do that, they're going to pull the free trade deal away. A lot of Americans may not be aware of this, but it's a big story in Britain uh, that this promised huge free trade deal uh, between the U.S. and Britain will be jeopardized if the British go ahead with this Huawei system. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Well, that will be interesting because I know President Trump is very much against Huawei uh, having open yeah. access to the U.S. market. Well, from yeah. Belfast, Northern Ireland, Dale Hurd, senior international correspondent, thanks for those insights. Thank you, Gary. In his third State of the Union speech, President Trump touted his administration's economic successes. Unemployment is down to 50-year lows. The stock market is at a record high. So are there any danger signs suggesting a slowdown? Or is it full steam ahead for the U.S. economy right through and beyond to Election Day? 
Well, joining us from Washington is John Tamney. Mr. Tamney is director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and author of the new book, They're Both Wrong, a policy guide for America's frustrated independent thinkers. Okay, John, I've got to ask you, what did you think of the president's third State of the Union speech? Uh, I, I liked it much better than his ori original inaugural speech and in that I felt that one was too focused on how awful things were. I like uh, uh, very optimistic ones, and I think this one, this one was most definitely optimistic. I think the president has a reason to be optimistic. The economy is doing well, and, and presidencies are ultimately based on how well the economy does, so I, I, thought, I thought he focused on the right things. It's just my view, however, that things are always generally very good in the U.S. A bad day for us economically is a boom time for anyone else. And so I tend to want them to focus on the good at all times. And people always uh, focus in on when it comes to Election Day on pocketbook issues. Is that correct? Without question. Uh, isn't it interesting? Because there's nothing about economic growth in the Constitution that the founders' view was that free people would naturally prosper. And I share that view. But ultimately, presidents in, in the modern era are, are judged based on how well the economy is doing. And so it's very understandable that President Trump does have a good economy going right now. I think some of his policies have had something to do with this. And so it makes sense for him to talk about this, stress it over. This, this is how you'd want to kick off a re-election campaign. John, he announced some ambitious programs in his third State of the Union. He sounded a bit more like a Democrat, actually, than a conservative Republican to me. I mean, he doesn't believe in raising taxes, but it seemed like he has no problem spending on programs. Your thoughts? Um, I, I think that is always a very dangerous thing. To me, uh, government spending is the ultimate tax on American prosperity. Let me be clear, that's not me focused on deficits or surpluses. I think that's generally a waste of time. But every dollar that Congress spends is an extra dollar of control that Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer, Donald Trump, Barack Obama have over the economy rather than, than a Jeff Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg or Fred Smith. And so I think it's always been a mistake for Republicans. They talk a big game about limited government, but they generally, on, on their watch, spending rises just as it does under Democrats. And, I, and I, I think that's a dangerous thing. I think Republicans should be more about how they're going to try to push the resources back into the private economy, not vacuum up more of them. And the word in Washington is that the president may unveil plans for another middle class tax cut, possibly this spring. Would that help or hurt the U.S. economy? Is it needed? It's, it, it's not that it would hurt the U.S. economy. Anytime that you can reduce the tax burden on, on workers, that's a good thing. But I think it's a myth when Republicans talk about how we're going to focus on middle-class taxes. If you want to help middle-class earners, the single best way to do it is to very much reduce taxes on the super-rich. And why is that? The simple truth is that all jobs and all companies are a function of investment. The rich, by virtue of being rich, have all sorts of unspent wealth that they really have no choice but to invest. And so if you really want to drive economic growth, the growth, which is what the Republicans are talking about, comes from major tax cuts on, on the highest earners, not from reducing taxes for middle earners. It, it, no one wants to admit this, but this is just an economic fact of life. So at a time of record tax revenues, it looks like our budget deficit's going to grow 
More than a trillion dollars this year, John. What do you think of this growing debt? Is it any wonder that there are deficits when revenues continue to flow into the U.S. Treasury at record levels? This is the market's way of saying that revenues aren't just high right now, but in the decades going forward, they're going to skyrocket. And because of that, investors are willing to line up and lend very cheaply to the federal government. Now, my view, once again, is that to focus on debts and deficits is to miss the bigger problem of spending. I don't, I don't worry too much about how governments get it. I just I think it's a problem that they get it. But if you're worried about deficits, the paradoxical truth that the quickest way to bring them down is to massively decrease the flow of revenues into the U.S. Treasury, not increase it. And in his State of the Union address, the president hailed the successes of both the USMCA and phase one China trade deals. So how important are those deals to our economy? And when do you expect we'll start seeing some results? Well, my personal and, and deeply held view, I'm an Adam Smith kind of thinker, is that the last thing I want is politicians inserting themselves into trade. I think trade is an individual act that doesn't take place among countries, but people. And I feel like that if the whole world wants to compete to give me a bargain, I should be able to enjoy that. I should be able to enjoy a rising paycheck, the value of which comes from global trade, if I want to. And so I don't like trade deals overall. Uh, what's, I suppose if there's good that comes from this is that it means that there will no longer be trade brinksmanship or trade wars between countries. Let's never forget that trade is not war. It's just cooperation among productive people. And so the, what you most want to hope for is that governments stay out of the way. These deals at least give uh, investors and they give the economy breathing room to say, okay, this is no longer a risk to economic growth because tariffs and things like that are very much a risk to economic growth. Is this upcoming election uh, going to be a choice between socialism and capitalism? What do you think? While Democrats talk a big game in primaries, just as Republicans do, where both sides are playing to their base, what I always tell people is some of the richest, most enterprising people on earth support the Democrats. Do we really think that they're supporting these candidates in the hope that they will re reduce their ability to be enterprising, reduce their ability to be innovative? I don't think so. And so, yes, it will be billed as socialism versus capitalism. But what we usually see with these elections is that both sides move a bit toward the middle, for good or bad, but that's what they do. Uh, the U.S. is not a socialist country. It's people are the opposite of socialists. We descend from people who, who gave up everything in order to get here to achieve economic freedom. We're not about to go socialist. Doesn't matter which party's in the White House. It's not going to happen. Okay, the book is Are Both Wrong? A Policy Guide for America's Frustrated Independent Thinkers. John Tamney of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks. Thanks for those insights. Thanks, Gary. If you didn't watch the president's third State of the Union address, you missed plenty of memorable moments. I'd like to share some of my favorites with you. I appreciated this moment honoring Charles McGee, one of the last survivors of the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. After more than 130 combat missions in World War II, he came back home to a country still struggling for civil rights and went on to serve America in Korea and Vietnam. On December 7th, Charles celebrated his 100th birthday. And conservative radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh, 
who recently announced he's suffering from stage four lung cancer, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That's the highest civilian award in America. Rush and Catherine, congratulations. Republicans applauded Limbaugh, but most Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, refused to join in. I guess they just can't bring themselves to applaud a radio talk show pioneer, a man who has influenced our culture by transforming American talk radio. Although I may disagree politically with Larry King, I would still applaud his accomplishments and contribution to American radio and television, wouldn't you? And this was one of my favorite memorable moments. The president recognized the volunteer efforts of Amy Williams from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Amy works full time and volunteers countless hours helping other military families. For the past seven months, she has done it all while her husband, Sergeant First Class Townsend Williams, is in Afghanistan on his fourth deployment in the Middle East. Amy's kids haven't seen their father's face in many months. Amy, your family's sacrifice makes it possible for all of our families to live in safety and in peace, and we want to thank you. Thank you, Amy. Moments later, the president announced a surprise. I am thrilled to inform you that your husband is back from deployment. He is here with us tonight, and we couldn't keep him waiting any longer. Sergeant Williams appeared in the House gallery, home from deployment. He embraced his wife and children in a tearful homecoming reunion. There were some other touching moments. We don't have time to show all of them to you. And here's an unprecedented moment, though, that we're unlikely to forget. At the conclusion of the president's speech, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ripped up her copy of the president's State of the Union address. I guess she didn't have a paper shredder nearby. Now, some critics would say, She's ripped up the Constitution, so why not a copy of a presidential speech? Really, Madam Speaker? That was childish and beneath you. It reminded me of a child ripping up their report card because they didn't like the grades they received. But guess what? Ripping up a report card, or in this case, the president's speech, doesn't change the facts, the reality of his accomplishments. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.